0: So in Psalms 119, uh, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statues. Do not utterly forsake me. So the reason why I read that part is it's just about um, staying blameless in God, but then seeking righteousness and trying to, you know, have more clarity in his word, uh, which is something that we are doing by this Bible study, but then also, too, uh, something that we'll see uh, Jesus uses as a tool as we go further. So this week, if you read along where we left off, we were reading from 2.1 to 4.44, so we're reading, we read three chapters in Luke, and most all of these are centered around Jesus this time. So before it was around um, John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, but now we're going to start getting into the, the roles of Jesus as he is born and in his early years. This is all predates his missions, his uh, ministry. But it is the things leading up to it. So water is good. I'm calling this, uh, so this is session two, but I'm calling this for all the people. And you'll see why I say that a little bit later. So I'm not going to read everything like we did last time. I'm only going to read certain passages here and there. Um, because I'm assuming that you guys read along with it. <laughs> so, and if you hadn't, you probably heard the story and then maybe this will inspire you to go back. So we're going to start with Luke uh, chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 7, and then we'll go a little further from there. So in Luke 2, 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quen- Qu- I'm sorry, Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child and while they were there the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end end. so here um, there's a few things that we have to note based on How Luke is writing this. So last week we talked about Luke in particular. Luke is a physician. He was a friend of Paul. He's writing this for a man named Theophilus. So he's writing a letter, essentially. This is a very long letter, but he's writing an account for this man named Theophilus, and the whole point is for him to tell the gospel story. But Luke, being a physician, is a literal man, so he likes to give us as many clues as he possibly can to the time period that he's around, or maybe even reference some names that someone might be able to potentially talk to in the future. This will come more in handy as we get near the end of Jesus' ministry. But here in the beginning, the very first thing he says, in the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And most people just read through that and be like, yeah, it's Caesar, no big deal, and continue going. But this is actually a huge, huge deal, because just by mentioning Caesar Augustus, Luke is saying a few things. He's giving us a time and place in which this happened, and then he's also saying something about the culture surrounding uh, the greater part of Rome at this moment. So he gives us a time period. Caesar Augustus um, was in power from January 16th, 27 B.C. Uh, to August 19th, 1480. Um, so in those years, from 27 B.C. to 1480. Caesar Augustus was in power of Rome. He was the first full-fledged emperor of Rome, um, which means that he was essentially the world ruler, because as we know, most of developed nations were under the reign of Rome at this point, and so he was essentially the ruler of all. Uh, so he had basically complete control over the entire empire, which included Israel as well. Um, So the interesting thing is the word Augustus, uh, which was not his original name. His original name was Octavian. Uh, Augustus was something that was given to him. So on 16th of January, 27 BC, the Senate voted to give him the name Augustus. And Augustus is from the Latin word agir, which means increase and is translated into English as the illustrious one. So what they basically were voting on was he was not just emperor. They were calling him God. The Senate had voted Caesar Augustus to be a deity. So he was no longer man. He was God. So in this first sentence, Luke is saying, here is the time and place in which it took, which this account happened. And on that note as well, we are living under one reign of one person, one man, and that one man has become a deity, according to humanity, right? So, Rome has elevated this individual above all other humans and considered him a god, and so what is going on is humanity is become as worse as it possibly can at this point, right? Like, we have officially gone off the rails, and we have just rejected God entirely and said, "Man in and of itself is now God, and it is obtainable for man to be God," which is dan- super dangerous. So, in, in this particular instance, <laughs> Luke Luke is is calling this out. He's saying Jesus is being born in a time period in which these things are happening.
1: Right, this is, God.
0: yeah, yeah, so this is no longer just creating idol worship. You are now creating a God in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at first when I read it, I didn't think anything of it, but then when I started searching more into it, now it's like even in, in Jewish temples, maybe not so much in the temple, but Caesar Augustus' image would be somewhere around. So you're even just by not, just being complicit, in, in being there, you were sort of acknowledging that this other deity existed, right? Uh, which is the first commandment, no other gods before me. So we're in this time and culture where humanity has just gone corrupt, essentially, at this point. Um, so that that's that. We'll stop there, and we'll not go any further into Caesar Augustus. Um, but it, it is also, it serves as a warning for us as well. Uh, we have to watch what we allow to happen, uh, because as we know in the future, and when we know in the book of Revelation, there will be another that will come and sort of take that same position as Augustus, Caesar Augustus. So this is something that is, is foretold to be happening again. Uh, so, you know, we just have to watch out and see watch those things occur. So anyway, we have that, and uh, it goes a little further uh, to talk about Cornelius who's the governor of Syria, and they call this uh, registration of taxes. They're basically calling it for tax purposes. So the whole reason why uh, Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem is because they have to go back to his lineage place, which is from Bethlehem because he's a son of David, a lineage of David. So he has to track back to this particular area just so he can be taxed, essentially, too. Uh, so another another example of why this might is important is because there is a, a place where it's in uh where is it micah yes here it is micah 2 micah 5 2 and he says but you o bethlehem who are too little to be among the clans of judah for you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in israel so uh in, in order to fi- fulfill the prophecy of that happening which was in micah they had to be in bethlehem so they're being called to bethlehem uh, and so interestingly enough god has used corrupt humanity For his greater purpose and his greater will. Uh, Kind of like how he did in Exodus where he used Pharaoh and it said he hardened his heart, right? Like it's kind of the same thing. He's using Caesar Augustus to bring Jesus to the world, but Caesar Augustus totally has no idea that this is happening. Like he has no idea that his whole throne and his whole rule will be challenged by an infant. So that's a a cool, cool little thing to, to bring together. So here we go. We have The time, we have the period, we have the location. So now they are in Bethlehem, and Mary and Joseph can't find a place to put their baby, who is just freshly being born. And so it says, uh, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and this is verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So obviously, a lot of people have come to this town for this purpose, yeah to be taxed taxed. well to take a census to uh, to lead to eventual taxes yes Um, so they're they're all being brought in there's no place for them so the only place they can they can you know have this child is basically in this stable (laughs) outside of an inn so this child god who is being born is being born in the most humble of fashions in the most poor of fashions it's a complete contradiction to what humanity has just elevated as God. I, I
1: wonder what Mary's thoughts were. I mean, I know she was filled completely with the Holy
0: Spirit, but... Um, well, it goes back to, in, in, in chapter 1, Mary was talking about how she is a bondservant and, to God, right? She's, she's acknowledging that she is chained, like chained to God. So she's just basically <coughs> given up. She's given up her own rights. Yeah, she's just saying, you know, this is... This is what happens, yeah, and that's what you're going to notice as we go through Luke. The rest of the disciples, <clears throat> interestingly enough, same way, they give up themselves for God. They totally reject everything else that they have, and so it, it doesn't really make much of a big to do of Mary's thoughts because I guess they don't—they're not really—they don't she, matter she, anymore, right? Yeah, they, they're right. She is signed up. She said, "I take take all of me," basically, and so. I mean, I'm sure that's not an ideal situation to be born in, but at the same time, Mary and Joseph were poor. So I think they had probably already accepted the fate that they were going to be in a humble situation, either way, you know. Um, so we're seeing that go along. So we, we know they're in Bethlehem, which is fulfilling that prophecy from Matthew 5 2. We know they're there to be taxed, we know why, what's going on. And so she gives birth to her child and lays him in, in a manger and there, there is God, right? The son of man being born in the most humble of ways possible. I can't even imagine now anyone being born in a stable and, and laying in a manger. Uh, but it, it is essential to the, the gospel of Jesus to know that he was born so humbly because if he was born royally If he was born and had a triumphant entry, then it would have been exactly what everyone was looking for, and then it also wouldn't have appealed to everyone, for all the people, right? It would have appealed to the ones who knew and could foretell of his coming. So that is that part. We'll go from there. So here we're going to go into uh, the first witnesses of Jesus, the first people other than Mary and Joseph to really see Jesus, and to really see Jesus as the Son of God. Um, And so we're here in in verse uh, 9. It's where we'll all kind of read from here. And so this is about the shepherds and the angels. Sorry, thank you. In verse 9, it says, uh, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, for the record, he's talking to shepherds in a field nearby. He says, "'Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Um, "'For unto you the, in this is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. "'And this will be a sign for you. "'You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger.'" And then, here's the best part, suddenly there was the angel with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and among those with whom he is pleased. So the first people that we actually, or the first witnesses of Jesus being born are not the shepherds but rather the angels, right? So an angel has appeared, it has seen it, it is foretelling of Jesus and the most interesting thing, not only is it telling people but it's worshiping. It tells this very important line, and this will be the underlining theme over the next couple of ch- chapters. Uh, or the next Yeah, the next couple chapters from here. In verse 10, it says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So this is what they're saying. This is for everyone. And then they go into a, basically a worship session, and they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with those who he is pleased. Uh, so the angels bring in this message, and they bring it to the shepherds, right? So they haven't appeared to kings, they haven't appeared to priests, they haven't appeared to to anyone of that that lineage. They're appearing to shepherds in a field. These just other humble people. So then, uh, what happens in, in verse sixteen? Uh, this is again the shepherds. It says they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So here we go. Shepherds now go to see the baby. They see the baby. They tell Mary and Joseph about the signs. And all the people who are around her are pondering about it, but Mary is treasuring it. It's a completely different phrasing there. That, that's I, I love this phrasing. So while everyone else is wondering what this could possibly mean, this is just serving more as a confirmation for Mary. Mary is like, yep, yeah, this is right. This, I'm treasuring this. And then as they're on their way home, they're glorifying and praising God for what they had heard and seen. So there they go. What did are, what are, what are the, the shepherds and the angels have in common? They're glorifying God. They're worshiping God. They realize that Jesus is here. Their Savior has come for all the people, and they carry that mode of worship. So we're going to go. There's two more people who witness, and uh, it starts in the next couple next of couple, uh, verses here. Um, there's a man named Simon who we will see, I think, starting in verse, like, 22, and then also Anna, who's a little further down. I'm going to read part of 20 I'm going to read 22 through 24 first because this is kind of important. It says when they came for the purification according to the law of Moses they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Uh, Which In this particular instance, this is a a reference to the laws that were passed. There's a certain law that says if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and one for a sin offering. This is what they would do after a waiting period after the child was born. So she's here offering basically a a sin offering after, after having this child. And by bringing a pair of t- turtle doves and two pigeons, she is saying to, to the world, I, I am poor, <laughs> right? Like, that's what she's saying. Like, it, she can't afford a lamb, so she goes for the, the, the most humble thing that she can, which is the turtle doves. Um, so Mary is going to the temple. She's saying, here's my offering. She brings Jesus. And then there's a man named Simon in the temple. And this is in 25 uh, in Jerusalem. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simon here uh, blesses Jesus. He's another witness, right? He blesses him, and he he says this over him. And he he includes this very key phrase at the end uh, that he would be a light for revelation to the gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So what Simon is doing, this devout man who's been waiting his entire life for this moment and has been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see it come is prophesying. And he's not only prophesying, but he's saying that Jesus will be for everyone. Kind of like the angels, like it's a, it's a he's reflecting what the angels said where they said it was for all the people. In this particular case, he's saying a light and revelation for the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. So he is, from the beginning, saying that Jesus will be the Savior, not just for the Jews, as many thought would be the case, but for the Gentiles as well. He's come to save all of us. We all will be wrapped up in this, right? And then uh, he goes on a little further, and this is in 34. Uh, And he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And this he's talking to Mary in this particular place. And he's basically saying that, you know, this is your son will save humanity. At the same time, you will suffer for this. You're you're going to suffer for this. You're going to live to see your child Mm. crucified. Uh, essentially, mm-hmm. and so you you will suffer. You will, a part of you will be pierced in the process, but it it is a promise that it is for uh, the greater good, right? And then uh, there's Anna. So she's a little further down. This is in thirty six. She was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty four. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna just so happens to be there, basically. But after she became a widow, she devoted her life to fasting and prayer and to worshiping God. And she just was in the right place at the right time. You know? she, got to, she got to be there when Christ arrived to see the redemption start. So you have four people, well, four groups of people. You have the angels, the shepherds, you have Simon, and you have Anna, and they all have the common theme of, of worship and praise. They're all praising God for this announcement that is being made, which is Jesus' birth. So we'll move a little further down. It kind of like ends this portion uh, before they go a little bit further into his age and this is in verse 40 it says and the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom and the favor of god was upon him so we end jesus's birth in very young age by saying that he is filled with wisdom and the favor of god is upon him so we know going forward that this is not just any kid this is a a bit of an exceptional child so we're going to move on a little further going to go into the temple passages, which is from 41 to 52. Um, And and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase part of this and and then pull out certain things that are the the best that we need to notice. Um, Basically, when Jesus is 12, he and his family uh, go to the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. They travel there. uh, And when they leave, they don't notice him uh, (laughs) because most people would travel in a large group. So they probably just took off after they'd done a head count, the, the best way I can think of it is, like, if you've ever seen the movie Home Alone, and there's, like, the scene where Kevin's not in the car, right? Like, but some of their kid has jumped in real fast, and they're counting heads. <laughs> they probably did that, because this is 12 years later, and we know they've had more kids since then, uh, and plus a larger family. So anyway, it takes them a day to realize that Jesus is gone, so then they track back, and then it takes them another three days to realize that Jesus is uh, in the temple. And uh, it says that while he's in the temple, he was sitting with the teachers, listening to them, asking questions. Everyone hears his questions and his statements, and they're amazed at his understanding and his answers, including his parents. So they're all witnessing this. They're seeing Jesus in this place, and they're seeing how he interacts with the temple, with with the word, with the law. And everyone is witnessing this child who, it just said in verse 40, was filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. So we know that he has wisdom. Uh, but Cindy and I were talking about this a little bit last night. We were trying to figure out the significance of 12. And uh, in, in modern culture, modern Jewish culture, when you're 13 is when a, a male would have his bar mitzvah. Uh, and there's certain responsibilities that come along with it. It's not just a party. It's a transitional period into manhood. And at that point in time, you no longer are under the, the your parents' version of the law. You, yourself, have grown into the law. So you are now being held responsible for your interpretation of the law. And there's also even further um, responsibilities, like they could read passages from the Torah and stuff within their ceremonies. Um, It's only in the Middle Ages that it became 13, so it's estimated it was kind of like around 12, 13. For girls, it's 12. So Jesus at the age of 12, this is something that he would naturally have been doing. He would have been in in the process of going through that so that he could also participate in the ceremonies as well. So this is just kind of a natural thing, but the difference is the fact that they were amazed by and astonished by his wisdom that he had even at such a young age. So when they go to find him, and after they've seen this, Mary asked, and I think this is, this starts in 48. Yeah, it says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus replied, where were you looking for me? Or why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And uh, it says, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. (laughs) They were kind of confused by what he was implying. Uh, Because she clearly is referring to Joseph as your father and I uh, have been searching for you in great distress. And he replies, I'm in my father's house, which I guess would be confusing if if you don't know the whole narrative of the story. Jesus uh, is the son of God. So he's clearly he realizes at 12 he is the son of God and he is in the place he needs to be. The world yet may not have realized this, but he knows. And he knows what he's about to go do. So, in uh, verse fifty-one and fifty-two, uh, I'm going to read this, and this will close out for chapter two. It says, "He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So, this is again a common theme here. <clears throat> with everything he does, he is growing in wisdom. In stature and in favor with God, and in this case, he's doing so by submitting to his earthly parents, the people who have, who have brought him up into this world. So uh, that that kind of concludes the the early early life of Jesus. Years one through twelve. In a nutshell, does anybody have any questions before I go any further into this? Like something, or maybe something that you were reading that kind of stood out to you. I know there's a lot of information that kind of gets thrown into these things. I wonder
1: why it goes from his birth to when he's 12 and very almost nothing in between. I wonder why they just skip those years.
0: That's a good question. I I don't I don't have the reason for that. But I would say if you're looking at it from a historical perspective, which is what Luke was trying to do. He's simply documenting things that he can sort of, sort of like prove at this point, right? So he can prove that he was in Bethlehem at this point in time. So he was born here. He can prove that this was the time period in which, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth had their meeting with an angel, based on the time period. He can prove that, you know, by Jewish law, he would have been at the temple at this point in time because it was this this much past. And then, it's, right, right, it's, well, so I think it's all things, he's looking at it from a very, like, clinical perspective. Like, this is this is what I can put a stamp on, and I can document. And also, too, because he has witnesses in a couple cases. So he has the shepherds. He references them as a witness. Uh, he has uh, Anna and Simon as witnesses. They're, like, witnesses. So I think when, and this is super this is essential to Luke's doctrine of the gospel more so than anybody else he's trying to attach time and place with people so that as you go along like I guess if you were in the early church you might be able to talk to someone who knew that Simon you know what I mean or Anna from Fanuel like he's giving us these names because someone might actually be able to talk to not that person but a family member of them at this time so I think in his case it's all time and place so that's all he all he has but at the same time too for from the perspective of being born and then going to 12 may seem like a big jump but in like a Jewish culture like we're going back to this there's that time period where you're a child and mm-hmm. you're under your parents mm-hmm. so you're not r- responsible for yourself it's not until you are 12 that suddenly you are responsible for your interpretation of the law so i think that's probably why it jumps from there to there and then you have to look at like
2: 13 yeah, the bar- yeah. is the big manhood yeah. time yeah so that's kind of And
0: some saying. of the other gospels don't even don't even start with the birth at all right like it's just Matthew and Luke basically that have the birth and that's that's early story yeah. Mark and John just kind of we will just get into his ministry and just go from there you know so again I'm, I'm trying to come at it from the perspective of what the early church would have gotten out of this information in particular um, and i think maybe that's because that was the only real useful bits that they had for it was like this is he's 12 here look at what he's doing when he's 12 because now he's a man mm-hmm. so now this is important and i think that's where where yeah, it's coming from, from a baby to 12, yeah then he's baby to a man yeah because yeah. 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 like i said in their culture especially in orthodox culture if you are under the age of 12 you are not really accountable for your actions that is your parents who are accountable for your actions and actually it was, we were reading this it was, it was kind of interesting the father when he's when the kid turns 13 will go and, and pray to God and give thanks that he is no longer accountable for his child's sins and it says that that's what they do so I think just as a child perspective like those years are not really important like, like in the story in the narrative of what it means as God you know like he is born here he is son of man and now here he is as a man we're just launching straight into that
2: Think
0: about John the Baptist right right well in, in Matthew's story it's more spread out so like Luke is is kind of just Luke is focusing on a very specific thing he's focusing on the birth but he's also unlike the other ones focus on the birth of John mm-hmm. as well because he's trying to paint the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus and how they relate, which comes into fruition here in this next bit, because he he saw that there was prophecies about John that were not being written about, and those needed to be addressed. So I think there, there's that there's that too. But again, that's why we have four gospels instead of one. <laughs> They're all the same story, but they all have different, slightly different accounts. So we can go back and and, and check and and see where maybe one you know made a misstep or where one. Was uh didn't fill in all the information, we have Matthew to look at, or we have Mark or John, or something like that, too. So it's that's why we have them because the,
2: the story of John the Baptist, too. We don't see his childhood either. You'll, you'll see where it was born, then he was born, then it was talking about the circumcision, then it was talking about, and then he grew, and then yeah, we're in basically the 40 years,
0: we're basically skipping to when he's 30, you know, like we're basically mm-hmm. like, here's John, he's 30, and, yep. and that's it.
2: And he jumps out there, and he's in the wilderness for all those years. Um, so it's kind of like, I think the key to Jesus is, is the fact let's just face it, there's a lot of diaper changing going on, there's a lot of kid stuff going on, he played with uh, camels and donkeys and rode donkeys and stuff, and, <laughs> but and, I mean, really, there wouldn't be much to tell, probably.
0: Yeah, and Luke, Luke too, Luke is a Gentile, right? So Luke has come on board later. He's come on board at the time of Paul. Mm-hmm. So he is writing from the perspective of the things, the stories that he's collected, so he's collected these stories and he's put them together and re- other reference scripts. So he literally has a very limited window. He know about it right. Now. And then the biggest thing, and this is, would be the biggest thing, but this is the problem. Um, the person that he's writing this to, he's not writing this to the church, right? Like we've picked this up to the church, but he's yeah. writing it to most excellent Theophilus, yeah, which yeah. nobody knows anything about. But <laughs> he also wrote the book of Acts to this person. So he's clearly tatering, like, creating a story specifically for this man. Like, this is your account. This is what you know. He says that. This is what, this is. He was an officer of a, it just high, high-ranking, a it just says,
2: most, high-ranking officer.
0: It just says most excellent Theophilus. And there's not really much known about him. They don't know if he was a high-ranking officer, like, in Rome or, or, a, like, or if he was a Jewish officer. There's not really anything documented about him. But he clearly was someone who was of a higher stature and had started to adopt Christianity. And so Luke is just writing down what he's been told, what like what they've already told him for his account. So this is they're keeping it for his account. So this person's commissioned him basically to write him a documentary and that's what he's what he's doing, a biography, if you will. So again, it, it's one of those things where I wish I knew more, too. Like, I wish there was a whole other book about it, but, but unfortunately there isn't.
1: That's
0: yeah, that that is also the mystery, too, you know? There is mystery. And why did he
1: feel like he had to write this person in particular? Yeah. I don't what? I
0: don't, I don't ever think of those kinds of things. Well, I I... I assume that he was someone that he was in contact with in the church, in the the early church. We know this, right? Um, From history, the letters of Paul came before the Gospels. They were written before the Gospels. So none of the Gospels were fully written down and manuscripted at the time. So I think at some point it occurred to them like, wait, we're getting older and this next generation needs to know about these things so we need to start writing these things down. We need to start putting these things down and that's what Luke is doing. So I think... You know this is six you know somewhere between thirty and sixty years later, you know after Jesus has died so uh, their their main focus at this point is the story of what Jesus is bringing as opposed to his upbringing and I think that's probably why, but again we 'll go more into that later, I guess, but here in chapter three is where John the Baptist comes and uh <coughs> Interestingly enough, we have a better time and place for this one. Um, he starts it the same way as he starts chapter 2. So it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, as his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trichonidus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So he lists all these people's names for a very specific reason, uh, and it's because when you put the, all the pieces of the puzzle together, you can track down like, almost a very specific year and when this occurred, which all kind of roughly goes into one. It's all one, year one, essentially. If you, if you know anything about A.D. and B.C., you have before Christ after the death of Christ, right? That's like, kind of how we count it. So this would basically track down to year one, essentially, at this point. Um, so we know this because Tiberius Caesar, the successor of the last Caesar, uh, became emperor in 14 AD, and he may have been in charge of certain provinces prior to that. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea uh, from 26 AD to 36. And then Herod... Um, ruled Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. So in that region of all kind of around 0, year 0 and 1 from there. So he names those officials because he's just giving us a time and place. Okay, but the more important part is in line 2, and it says, after all these things, it says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Uh, And basically... What's interesting about this is the word of God came to John. That phrase uh, is a direct reference to pretty much every other prophet that came in the Old Testament. So 1 Samuel 15, or uh, sorry, in 1 Samuel, Ezekiel, Jonah, uh, Malachi, Zechariah, uh, you're seeing all of these people, their introductions essentially is the word of God came to this person. So by them saying this, He is saying that John is a prophet, basically. Which may not seem super important, but prophets always lead to something. (laughs) And in this particular case, it's leading to Jesus. And it's also, as you remember last week, uh, it's because it's been 460 years since we heard anything from a prophet. Malachi was the last one. So it's kind of a big deal when some new prophet comes into town and uh, he's got something to say. That's the word of God. And then also, too, Isaiah 43, uh, or Isaiah 40 basically references where he's coming out of the wilderness. And it says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Isaiah has prepared the way for John the Baptist, who is now preparing the way for... Jesus to come. So anyway, what is, uh, what is John's thing, right? Like what is the one thing that we all know John does? Anyone? What is, what is, John's, what is John's ministry solely? Baptism. baptism, yes. Hence the name John the Baptist. Um, so an interesting thing about baptism, um, baptize comes from the Greek word baptizio, which means to plunge, dip, or immerse. And John was known as the the Baptist. So he was immersing people in the River Jordan. So when people were baptized by him, they were going underwater. Uh, It symbolized both the cleansing away of sin and passing safely through the waters of judgment and death. So when you would go down, come back, it was signifying that you were a new person. You've come back a new person. You have passed through the waters of judgment and death, and here you are and you are, your heart is now cleansed, right? Um, and so then we see this, in particular, like if you want to write these down, you can go look at look at a few references of where this came from. Uh, in Genesis 7, 6 through 24, um, in Exodus 14, 26 through 29, Jonah 1, uh, verse 7 through 16, so uh, the ones I just gave you were, for instance uh in Exodus is when the seas were parted, right, and they walked through the seas, so they walked through they were no longer slaves, right they were walking through, and they were into freedom. This is a new new thing in uh, Jonah, when he has been thrown into the sea after three days being brought back, God has given him a second chance uh, and then in Genesis, you have another reference there too so just You can read those again if you want, but it's basically just a symbolism of, of what baptism is. Baptism is a process of cleansing those sins. I'm going to read uh, just a certain part from here. This is good. We'll read it chapter 7, and we'll kind of go through a little bit here. So it said, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You
2: mean verse
0: 7. Yeah, sorry, verse 7. Sorry, 3, verse 7, yeah. so now we're in 8 here, sorry. It says, uh, <clears throat> And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered to them, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. To the, who, coming? The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So we'll stop there. We'll just leave it at that. So uh, this is basically the message that John is bringing. He's telling, he's foretelling of the person who's coming to not only baptize with water, but to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we kind of talked about, in, in Luke in general, the big, one of the biggest things you're going to hear over and over again is the Holy Spirit. Because this man is all about the Holy Spirit. And it continues in Acts. There's a reason why. <laughs> His sequel is Acts, and Acts is all about the Holy Spirit. So in this part, we're seeing that expectation. I baptize you with water, but the person who comes after me will baptize for you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And in verses 10 through 14, the crowds are asking him what he should do, like what they should do. And he's basically giving them like these little mini-sermons. So whoever has two tunics is to share it. Tax collectors, uh, teachers, what shall we do? Collect no more than you are authorized to. Just these little things, but they're all reflections of what Jesus will say in the future, right? They're like little prophecies. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, exactly. It all leads back to that Sermon on the Mount thing that we'll get to later when we get there. And then I'll be like, this is what we were talking about. So he is referencing things to come, basically. He's making the path, basically separating it, saying, here, here's what's about to come to you. The difference is, I can only do water, but this man will bring the Holy Spirit. So, um, sorry. (sighs) Yeah. So anyway, that is John's message to everyone. And one thing that I want to point out, because this is a key, this is once again part of the key, key theme of it being for everyone, is in verse 8, he says, um, Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham or for Abraham. And the reason why he says this, is, again, is to extend this idea to Gentiles, which is people who are not of the Israeli or Jewish lineage at this point. He's basically saying, like, look, you can hide behind being a Jew, but that's not going to save you. And at the end of the day, this person that's coming after you, is this is being extended to everyone. And uh, I think the reason why that's a radical idea is because a lot of people at the time period were thinking that there was this sense of excellence around, about, around being a Jew in particular, and if you held fast to the laws and you were a righteous person... You were supposed to be the one to benefit from it, right? You were the one who was going to benefit from this. Um, but God's intention always for, was for all of humanity to be covered by this. It wasn't just one. He just used them as a path to get to this point. He needed this group of people to stay righteous so that something could happen in the future. So we'll go down a little further. Here we are um, in verse 21. And this account is a little shorter than like it is in Matthew. Uh, but it says, Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So John baptized Jesus. It doesn't say that specifically here, but it does in Matthew. So we know between the two accounts that he was the one who did it. Um, now, the question is, why would Jesus, if we know him as God's son, and we know that he was without sin, why would he go through the process of ba- like being baptized? Because that was all about cleansing, cleansing yourself from, from the sin, sinliness. Uh, and so the reason why is he, is he is, to understand Jesus, you have to understand he is, he's being born as a man to take on the sins of humanity. So while he is not sinning, He's taking all of our sins to bury them and then be resurrected so that we have a, past, a path, basically a path of a path to grace. So he's taking all of our sins and he's being baptized and saying, this is what I'm about to do for you. I'm about to destroy your sin, basically. So then, of, God, of course, God comes and says, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. So he's acknowledging not only that this is his son, this is the first like public statement from God directly, He's not only acknowledging that this is his son, but he's also saying that he's pleased in him as who he is and in what he's about to do for humanity. And this is all happening before Jesus has publicly gone out into ministry at this point. So then we get into this really long part here, from 23 to 38, which is called the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, And you'll find this in Matthew as well. Uh, but Luke goes a little further than Matthew does. So Matthew kind of stops at Abraham, right? That's his, his interest. He's just about connecting the dots and showing that Jesus, Jesus was from the lineage of Abraham and also from the lineage of David, which were essential promises. Luke, on the other hand, just keeps on going. He says, let's just go all the way back, right? Not only is he of the lineage of David and the lineage of Abraham, he's also the lineage of Adam. And then it ends with this very key word, the Son of God. Now, I've wondered this. I, for the longest time, I've wondered why this didn't come right after Jesus was born in the story narrative. But when you read it and why, why it is here in particular is because it comes right after God himself has acknowledged that this is his son. So he is saying, this is my son, and then here's, here's the list to prove it, right? Like, here's, here's how we track it back. So, of course, you can read this, and you'll see some names that sound familiar, and as we were doing the Old Testament, you'll know a little bit more about it. There's two key things here. He tracks it all the way back to Adam, who was, was born from dirt. So Adam is not a Jew, right? Right? Like, yeah, Adam was created from dust, essentially. Uh, and he is not necessarily a, a Jew, right? Like, he is just a human. He, he's from all of humanity has sprung forth from Adam and Eve. So what he is saying in this moment, right here again, is this is a gospel for all right? Mm-hmm. This is for all of humanity, and he's the son of God. So we've got two things right here. David, here, he, we're fulfilling that, that promise that he was from David, we're fulfilling the thing that he's from Abraham, but on a bigger note, he is the son of man, and he is here to save the day.
1: I wonder at what point they, in the lineage set they
0: became Jewish, and what? At it all starts with Abraham. So if you Abraham. remember in the Old Testament, Abraham made a covenant with, uh, or God made a covenant with Abraham to set aside his sons, <clears throat> which is where the process of circumcision came in. Righteousness. That's the making of the covenant with that yeah, that's that covenant. So that all comes from Abraham, what which is why. No, wait, well, it, it's it, that he was the son, like the it, all of Israel. Comes from a tribe, which is a lineage of Abraham. That was part of the covenant, part of the promise, right? The I mean, twelve tribes. The covenant with Abraham, he was not yeah, became. Yeah. So that's also symbolic of like Jesus. Which is why Matthew <laughs> stops at Abraham, because Matthew's sole concern is just establishing that lineage, right? Like it comes from David, it comes from Abraham. Cool, we're good. We're, we don't need to go any further. But Luke, being the Gentile that he is, notices that this is a thing that Gentiles are going to want to, to learn. So for them, it needs to go a little further back, and so he takes it all the way back to Adam. So now we're going to get into one of my favorite parts of the Bible, or Luke. And this is the temptation of Jesus. And I think this is part of my, my favorite, because it, it kind of, it really... Showcases the tenacity of Christ, right? Like it shows it shows how strong of an individual he really is. Uh, so, in, in chapter four, verse one, it says, "In Jesus, full of the Holy, Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days." Um, so, first and foremost, uh, it says, "In Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit." So after he's been baptized and the Holy Spirit has descended upon him from heaven in the form of a dove, it is now saying that Jesus is fully under the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are like together in this part, right? He is not being led by right himself. and he is it, being yeah, led by right. So so the, the next Holy line Spirit. says and was led by the Spirit <laughs> yeah. into the wilderness. Man. So not only is Jesus yeah launching his ministry essentially shortly, mm-hmm. but he is being led by the Holy Spirit. So he is, again, kind of like when we were talking about Mary and how she sort of sub- submitted herself and yep. surrendered herself. Yep. Jesus has now surrendered himself, his physical self, to the Holy Spirit, and everything he's doing from here on out is being led by the Holy Spirit.
1: Um, you know, in there, I've got to go back. Uh, I want to talk about just a little briefly. I don't go kinda, for it. i see if I can note this. Um, before you get in there, you said this is where the temptation of Jesus is, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is where God takes uh, has descended upon Jesus, in, in a sense. Yeah. Because he is the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, and the devil comes, and he begins that temptation. Well, this is kind of like symbolic to another situation where Job... Yeah. Okay? That the devil goes to... and to god and says this and god gives him permission to do this yeah. but at this point i see god didn't give him permission to do anything because god took on him. with jesus he told the devil to get out of him so many essence, he didn't even was not even making any kind of thing with him right whereas he did it in joke with joe
0: yeah so in Job, he permitted it. Like yeah. He, didn't, uh, he, didn't, yeah, specifically, it he didn't specifically cause things to happen. Yeah. Rather, he permitted it to happen. It was a right. lesson in humility for Job, basically. But at the same time, it goes all the way back to Genesis, right? Yeah. The fall of man. Evil has crept into the world through humanity's sin. And so God... It says, it's like in Isaiah, I think, where it's basically saying that, like, you know, even the trees bow down to God, right? Yes. Like, so, everything submits to God. But, at the same time, we have allowed sin to creep into the world. And so, sin exists, in this particular case, in the form of the devil. Right. It exists. It's here. We can't, like, we can't not acknowledge it. It does exist. Sin, suffering, all those things, and it's because we broke that covenant that was initial with God. But... It's still even sin lives under the authority of God, right? right? So, like, and this is what's so interesting about this particular portion, and the same with, the same with uh, in the case in Job is that those things happen, but when God wants it to stop, it stops. Yeah, yeah you know what I mean? So it's like in 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 Job's case, Job wasn't humble, right? right. So he he had all these things, and it wasn't until all of it was taken away. And Jesus was like, where were you when I created the ways? Where were you when I did this? Like, God was basically saying that to him. Uh, That was when he realized, like, oh, yeah, this is all out of my hands, right? And and so what is interesting about this particular portion is this shows that evil has crept into the world. And similar to Job, we can be tested and tried, but it still has to bow down to the authority of God. And that's where, in, in this particular case, we have to acknowledge that Jesus... Is God, the Holy Spirit is with Him, and they're all acting together in that Trinitarian approach.
1: And it's still symbolic too. When you're talking about where Eve was tempted, but at the same, time the devil didn't come to her. Yeah. And it, te- and it was there. Right, right. right. So I, I could see no, it, it, cre- evil, it Obviously,
0: see crept, crept into the world.
1: Allow uh, Satan <coughs> to have any part of
0: Jesus. Yeah, it obviously crept into the world before. Yeah. You know, I mean, at the at the beginning. But because it was there. It was there in the presence of the tree, and that's why she ate the fruit, because mm. she was tempted, right? Um, so there is that, that downfall of humanity. There is evil in the world, but at the same time, it still has to submit to the authority of God. But the devil will try to give you the, the perception that it doesn't, right? Like, that right. this is just part of it, because he's a liar. Like, that's essentially what it is. He lies, he cheats, he steals, he plays rough. And only the people who are really, truly devout will know how to, to get past that, which is the case of what Jesus does here. Mm-hmm. So we know that he's, in the, he's being led by the Holy Spirit. He goes in the wilderness for 40 days. And it says, the next part, being tempted by the devil. So this only uses, like, three examples, but we can <coughs> pretty much be safe to assume that he's being tempted the entire time. <laughs> like, it just never ends. It's just a constant barrage. For yeah, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And
2: basically is the second Adam Christ is really the second Adam so yeah it's it's God's he's second being start tempted the very same three aspects that Adam did right. um, Absolutely. so if you read what Adam was tempted with the lust of the flesh mm-hmm. and the things that he faced three aspects Jesus here was faced with the three aspects and with the devil's tape. He, he 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 won back the battle against the enemy.
0: so 40 in this particular case is is significant because if you remember Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering around in the deserts, that's in numbers. Uh, And then uh, both Moses and Elijah had 40-day feasts, or fast, sorry, not feast, fast, definitely a fast. Um, And fasting was a means of focusing intently on prayer, right? That was the whole purpose. So that's why Jesus is being led into the wilderness. His ministry has not started his whole point is to fast and to pray, to prepare himself for what's going on, and the devil has seen this as an opportune time to attack. He's isolated, right? He's not surrounded by anyone, so this is the perfect time to really tempt him. Uh, and so that's what, what's, what happens. So I'll keep reading because this is what the devil says and then what his answers are, are very pivotal to understand Jesus and where he's coming from. So... Um, Here in verse 2, I'll start for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. So again, he was there to fast. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, Uh, which comes from Deuteronomy 8.3, which is an Old Testament (coughs) passage being used again. Once again, Jesus is full of wisdom, so he knows these things. Uh, which is man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Remember, right? Like the, the, God spoke the world into motion. So man does not live by bread. Rather, he lives by the mouth of the Lord. That's uh, literally from there. So the devil, in verse 5, took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to him to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Which goes back to the first commandment, where in Exodus 20, verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. So here the devil is is lying. Essentially, he's saying, look, I have authority over the world, which is not true. God has ultimate authority over the world. But if you have read Revelations, you know that there is time periods where evil has been granted, granted authority for a time, right? For, for all, but it's all for the great, there's a purpose. God has a purpose for it. So this isn't entirely false, but at the same time, Jesus knows that this is not true. And he also knows that if he worships, worships the devil, then he gives up that covenant that he has with God. So he breaks the first first commandment. So he's saying, no, it's written in the Bible you sh- or it's written in the, the Torah, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So he's once again referencing him right back with theology, right? Like what his wisdom goes for. Mm-hmm. And then, it, then the devil goes a little step further and this is, this is key. So he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Which now Satan, the devil, is using <laughs> using the word of God, essentially, against Jesus. He's he's referencing Psalms 91, 11 through 12, where it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's a literal thing. The devil, this is, this is the... This is great to acknowledge the devil knows the Bible just as well as Jesus does, right? The difference is Jesus, again, is not persuaded by this. And so he answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that comes from uh, Deuteronomy 6.16. So he's, he's now saying, like, look, he's not only saying, like, this is written in the Bible, he is saying, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. He is saying, I am Jesus, I am God.
1: That's what I was gonna say because that, that stated again, because I think that in let's say the devil says God is down here in this human form. He's in this weakened state. So this is what I can do for him. I'm gonna tempt see if I can tempt him. Right. And that's what comes out of that. Yeah. The final
0: words to him at that point: "There, I am God." Yeah. There it is. It it, it is it is literally right there. He is saying, "I am God." There's okay. no way around. There's that is red letter text. That is what he is establishing, mm-hmm. right? He is saying, "I am God." Stop it. Cut it out. I've I've had enough of this. Forty days of you interrogating me and trying to use my own words against me. Uh, I am God. I'm here to save humanity. Get behind me. Which. In Luke 9, like I kind of used in reference a few weeks later, it says that through the power of his name they have the authority to cast out demons and to heal. So we establish that God's name alone is enough to silence the devil. But in this particular case, it's just so good, you should not put the Lord your God to test. He's saying, don't don't test me. You Get out of here. So Satan, evil, has to submit to the authority yeah. of Jesus because Jesus is God. So We've now had Jesus being born. We have seen how he acted when he was 12, when he was early in his ministry. We then see him uh, being baptized and taking on the sins of humanity in which God blesses him and fills him with the Holy Spirit. And now we see him being tested by the devil, and then he comes and says, I am God. So now we have the definition of the Trinity being born within these passages. We see Jesus, the man... We see the Holy Spirit, we see God, and they all interact as one thing. It's all it's all literally right there. It all comes together in that one passage. And that's what's essential. Like this is he's saying, I'm here in the flesh, but I'm also God. And I'm also the Holy Spirit. We act separately, but we act together. And so that that to me, this is like probably one of I get the most excited about that because it, it really is establishing that truth that we know. It sometimes seems really complicated. The Trinity, like this idea of three, three entities being one thing, can seem kind of complex, but it's really not. You know it's, it's super simple. Like it's Jesus God. is God, the Holy Spirit right. is God, God is God. They're separate, but then they work together when they need to. Or, or they're constantly in a flow, but here in this particular case, they've worked together. So that's, that's kind of that. He then <clears throat> leaves, gets some food, you know, carries on. And then uh, I'm only going to go a little further into this. And then we'll stop from there. Uh, he goes back to his hometown. And uh, this, is, this is interesting because it, it, it kind of, once again, further emphasis, put emphasis on a certain point. So Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then in verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Question mark. So what we have here is Jesus has returned home, right? He's in Nazareth. He rolls out the scroll. He's reading a passage from Isaiah, which is common. This is what you would do if you were in the synagogue. Uh, He's reading. And then he says, this is fulfilled. (laughs) Hey, guys. I'm coming here to fulfill these prophecies. I'm coming here to uh, proclaim the good news to the poor, to bring liberty to the captives, bring sight to the blind, uh, save those who are oppressed, and this is the year of the Lord, right? He's basically saying, this is happening now. Here I am. I'm going to do this. And at first, they're like, wow, this is really great, right? But then someone in the crowd, I would imagine, starts it, and then it all kind of goes from there. Is this not Joseph's son, right? So now they're questioning, like, wait, no, this isn't a, th- This isn't a prophet. This is the the poor guy, the poor carpenter guy. Yeah, guy. This is yeah. Joseph's son, right? Yeah. So doubt has now started to creep in to yeah. Nazareth, right? And then he said to them, <clears throat> doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What? We have heard you did it. Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down a cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. So this seems kind of confusing. I had to read it several times to make sure I was getting this all right. But basically what Jesus is doing is he's referencing Elijah and Elisha, and he's saying these people were not accepted by you these prophets came to you and they were not accepted by you and so God's message was sent elsewhere right it was sent to Syria it was sent to Zarephath and these places were the land of Gentiles right these people were not Jews Jesus is saying my message is going to go out to the world you can accept it or it's going to go somewhere else. Someone else is going to get this message. And naturally, they're enraged by this. Like they're ba- He's basically saying, like, you, because they've been filled with doubt and they're now questioning him, he's basically saying, like, look, this message is going to get out whether you like it or not. People are going to be healed. People are going to be, uh, their sickness will be taken away. And, and most importantly, the kingdom of heaven will come. And you can either get behind this message or you can just get out, basically. And so naturally they're upset with him and they try to kill him. (laughs) They're like, we're going to throw him off the cliff. Who is this guy? And of course he gets away because he's Jesus. Jesus is not intended to die just yet, right? Like this is not part of the plan. But the point is, is that he was establishing from here that this is for all. This is for everyone. This is not just for you. This is for everyone. And that excellence that sometimes people have where they think that it's because Jesus didn't fit the mold of what they were expecting, as he came, they were a little apprehensive to his message. Had he come as a king and rolled in and, and you know, just blazed his way in there, maybe they would have been more receptive to it. But he came as a poor, humble servant. And, and ironically, that's where his message would grow the most. With the poor, the humble, the deaf, the prostitutes, the the... The people who were Gentiles, the people who were not supposed to be blessed, were the ones who were going to be the ones where this is going to grow mostly. And so then we see that happen. He gets cast out. He then heals a man with a demon. He heals a few more. He preaches in the synagogue. And that's how we wrap up chapter four from there. But it's key to establish that this is the very early stages of Jesus' ministry. He has been born, he has grown in wisdom, he has been baptized, he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He has taken on both full man and full God. He has prophesied about the things to for coming, and he is now actively starting his ministry. And
2: he started in the church, and the church kicked
0: him out. Right, the church was the place (laughs) to say no. (laughs) it was like a test project right like it's like it's like when you roll out something new like we got this new app guys we want you to try it and then you test it with your people and they don't like it but everybody else takes on you know it's the same thing he took it he did it exactly the way he was supposed to he went to the synagogue he read from the scroll this is what you would do in a process of that kind of thing (coughs) and then he was going to bring his profession and then they were doubtful and didn't accept it
2: hometown was supposed to rally against homeboy, gather around, give him an offering, send him around the world, but instead they want to throw him off the cliff, kill him, and I like that because right after, you know, the devil left Jesus after the temptation, it says, he left him for another opportune opportune time. Yeah, he's coming back. He had an opportune time at the (laughs) church when it would throw him off the cliff, and then the Bible says that Jesus... Walked through the midst of them and went away. Yeah. <laughs> How did he get away? Well, the Holy Ghost just—he just, he just yeah. walked right on through.
0: He's got that, you know, Holy Ghost partation with him. Yeah, He's just he walking just, he through just crowds. Right through. He's got the. Uh, <laughs>
2: was it so I like that. I did always think about that. Not only was his hometown a bad place for the poor guy to start, but he—he he went into church and the church. Ditched yeah. Well, I
1: think it, but I'm it was showing that Satan had entered the church. Oh, no, yeah. And
0: he was uh, trying <coughs> to trying to put that. It's, it, it shows the cracks, right? It shows yeah. the crack, And that's kind of what we're supposed to be looking at as a church ourselves. Are we so stuck on the law that sometimes we don't even see Jesus when he exists? You know, like where. But the only way we would know that is if we really are praying and studying his word. Like, if we're. Can we discern the difference? That's where. That's where the story of him being in the wilderness is essential because it's, it's showing that God, Jesus in particular, clung tightly to the word of God. So he clung, t- he clung to it. That was his way out, you know? Uh, so I think the only way we know that is if we, are, if we are actively participating in that as well. But yeah, I mean, he uses... He, he uses it, it's basically... There's, the way you can look at it is Satan has tempted him in different ways, tempted him in the form of his, his you know, hometown tempted him blatantly in the desert, in the wilderness, and, and yet at the same time he's passed through all of that.